Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, one more time, President Barack Obama is looking to give out a free lunch to buy votes by promising something for nothing. Although I guess it's not votes for him because he's not running again, but I guess votes for the Democratic Party, maybe votes for Hillary Clinton in the future by appealing to workers and promising them more overtime pay. This is a new law that I suppose is going to be implemented in 2016, uh, which will delay somewhat the negative ramifications of this seemingly positive legislation. But what President Obama is going to do is he's going to raise the threshold by which overtime pay is required. And the way this works is, and I don't know the exact numbers, I'm just going to guesstimate them, but the way the rules are, if you have workers that are earning below a certain amount of money, maybe it's like $25,000 or something like that, that if they work more than 40 hours in any given week, that they need to be paid time and a half for any hour that they work that exceeds 40 in that week. And so usually when people earn less than that amount of money, they are not salaried workers. They are hourly workers and their boss needs to clock their hours. They have to punch in and punch out or, you know, you have to monitor how long they work because if they work more than eight hours, you're legally obligated to pay overtime. And if you don't and they can prove that they did work more than the eight hours and they weren't paid overtime, well, now you, you can be sued. But if you pay workers more than that, you can put them on salary. So right now, let's say somebody is has got a job and they're getting $40,000 a year salary. As the employer, you do not have to monitor uh, their day. You don't have to make sure that they don't work more than eight hours because it doesn't matter if they work nine or 10 hours. It, I mean, it's, it's okay because they're paid a salary. They're not paid any kind of hourly rate. So they're allowed to put in as much time as they want you know, to get the job done. And what's going to happen, though, is now under the new rules, just up to a little over 50000 now is going to require overtime. So now somebody who's paid $40,000 a year, if they work more than 40 hours in a given week, they will have to be paid overtime for those hours. Now, the president is acting like, hey, this is a big gift, right? I'm giving you all a raise. I'm going to force everybody who earns now between 25 and 50,000 a year on salary, which is probably kind of like a, an entry level type of salary position. And it's possible, too, that a lot of people that get hired in a company and they get a thirty five, forty thousand dollar a year job. A lot of them probably put in more than 40 hours a week, especially if they're trying to impress the boss, if they're trying to work their way up the corporate ladder. Uh, you know, they might be burning the midnight oil. They might be working 11, 12 hour days. You never know. Right. Because they, they're ambitious. They want to show uh, what they can do and they want to try to get raises and stuff like that. 
that. And they're not on the clock. I mean, nobody has to bother uh, with that. But now President Obama wants to claim credit for giving everybody a raise. Well, what is the effect, right? Because remember, there's the intention of the law and then there's the effect of the law. Now, can the president really pass a law forcing employers to give everybody a raise, right? If they were paying somebody 40000 a year to now pay them 45000 a year or $50,000 a year? No, because if the, if the worker was worth 50000 a year, he'd already be getting it. The fact that he's getting 40 at that particular moment in time must mean that that's the fair market value for whatever he's doing. Because otherwise, you know, why would you overpay? And, and so here's what ends up happening. When this happens, employers will now have to reduce the base salary. If somebody is typically working 50 hours a week in a job where they're getting paid $40,000 an hour, they're just going to have to reduce their pay to 40, you know, to 30,000 or 35,000, whatever the number works out to, so that when they factor in the overtime, they're still paying only $40,000 a year. So this is not going to give anybody a raise. It's just going to mean that their salary is going to have to be lowered to accommodate the extra hours so that their net take-home pay is the same as it was before, right? No one is going to get more money. They're just going to have to get paid in a different compensation package so that the net effect is they don't make any more money. But where this will do damage is to the extent that it's harder for employers to uh, redo these packages. It might mean that they end up hiring fewer people. But one of the things that will happen for sure is that flexible work schedules for people that earn $40,000, dollars a year will come to an end. Because part of the requirement of this law is that you keep track of how many hours your employees work. Well, if your employees are doing some work from home, you really can't easily track that. See, it's possible. Let's say I'm a a working mom and I have some young kids and maybe my employer was giving me some flexibility uh, to leave work early sometimes to finish up my work at home or maybe come home, uh, be with the kids for a while, do a little work, go back to the office, finish up, things like that. That won't be allowed because it's going to be too complicated and too much legal liability for an employer to allow a worker to do work off-site at home and then not really know how many hours they were working and then be subject to some type of future litigation with respect to overtime. So what I think is going to happen in 2016 is you're going to see a lot of workers who used to have the flexibility to do some work from home, they're going to lose that flexibility and their employer is going to require that they punch a clock or, you know, whatever they do. They they come in at nine, they leave at five and that all the work that they do, they do it at their office. Or even if they're working eight, eight hours or nine or 10 hours a day and they've already they've already lowered their pay so that they can give them the overtime. They want to make sure that they're not working any additional overtime because then they're subject to having to pay more money than they bargained for. So employers are going to have to have more control over their workers' schedules. And this is going to hurt people, particularly women with kids or people who are more likely to want a flexible work schedule, people who want to telecommute. They're not going to be able to do that. And of course, these are the people that the Democrats pretend to champion. Barack Obama always talks about how much he cares about women and things like that. Well, this, this law will probably disproportionately hurt women because they probably disproportionately want the flexible work schedule. But also, let's say you like to do a lot of work on some weeks to make up for other weeks where you may do less work or travel, right? Let's say you're in a job and you want to 
one week you need to do something and you only want to work 20 hours that week and you basically say look i'm going to make up for it i'm going to work 60 hours the following week right i'm going to catch up or hey i'm going to do a lot of work i'm going to really clean up a lot of my projects i'm going to work really hard for a week so that i have i can take some extra time off well you're not gonna be able to do that because the way the the overtime is it, you, you can't average it out if you work more than 40 hours in any given week you need overtime for that week, even if you worked fewer hours, even if, let's say, you worked 60 hours one week and 20 hours the next, even though it averages out to 40 hours a week, you're still owed overtime on the 20 hours that you worked extra the one week. You don't get, you know, the, your boss doesn't get credit for letting you work 20 hours fewer the following week. So what does that mean? That means that the boss will no longer be able to allow his employees to have that added flexibility. He's going to have to say, no, you can't. You have to work 40 hours, 40 hours. See, all this does is eliminate choice. See, what is the government mandating that if you work more than 40 hours in a week, you have to be paid time and a half for those extra hours? Because all that means is that the employer isn't going to want to pay the extra. And even if the, if the worker wants to work the overtime, and that happens a lot, that's where moonlighting comes from. Because a lot of people who have jobs where they earn 15, 20, 25,000 a year, right, and they're on salary, and they're already subject to the current overtime, one of the reasons that so many people have to get a second job is because their employer is not going to pay the overtime. Now, if there was no overtime rule, then the individual could just work extra hours for the same employer, which certainly makes a lot easier for the employee because he doesn't have to travel between the two jobs. And there's lost time there. There's downtime in transit where you're not getting paid by anybody. But because of the government, right, if I'm an employer and I'm perfectly willing to give a guy, let's say, $15 an hour to work however many hours he wants to work, and let's say he wants to work 60 but I'm not willing to pay him the extra, you know, seven fifty an hour for the other 20. I said, well, you know, I can only let you work for 40 hours. And now you got to go find another job. And maybe the other employer won't even give you 15. Maybe the other employer will only give you $10 an hour. So now you got to work even more time, right, to get the extra money. Because the government made it illegal to work for me at the $15 an hour, even though I was willing to pay it. Because they said, no, you got to pay $22.50. So I'm not willing to pay that much. See, none of this actually helps the worker. But it's great politics, right? Because the, the government says, hey, we're going to force your boss to pay you extra if you work overtime. It doesn't force the boss to do anything because either you don't work overtime when you might want to or your base pay gets cut so that when you work overtime, you're making the same amount of money that you used to make before the government supposedly came out to help you. Except now you don't have the flexibility to choose yourself. And of course, all this stuff just runs up the cost of doing business, right? Because now if, 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 if companies have to monitor all the hours that their forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 employees, $35,000, if you have to clock all these people instead of just giving them a salary and you know, as long as the job gets done, you don't care whether they do it in seven hours or 10 hours, just do the work. Now, no, now you got to monitor everybody. And what does that cost? And, you know, and what if there's a worker who is slower? Let's say there's a worker who can do a job, but he just needs a little bit more time. Maybe he's just not as, as quick and he doesn't mind you know, working 10 hours a day to get a job that somebody who's more efficient could do in seven, in seven hours. Well, under that kind of scenario, 
I got to fire the guy that takes 10 hours to do the job because he's just, you know, I don't want to pay him the overtime. I'm going to have to fire somebody who can work faster. But if the boss doesn't care, hey, I just need this. I just need this job done. You do it at your own pace. As long as it gets done within the day, I'm fine. Well, then that person can, can, can survive. But all this is is the government comes in and they try to take away the choices that workers would otherwise have over what their pay is, how many hours they want to work. All this, though, is to get the votes of the workers, because obviously there are more workers than bosses. When you're running for office, it's about getting votes. When they asked uh, Willie Sutton, you know, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Well, why do politicians want to pass laws that favor workers? Because that's where the votes are. Most people cash paychecks. They don't write them. But the problem is a lot of the workers who are voting for this nonsense don't understand how they are hurt by these policies, that the politicians pretend uh, that the policies are for their own good. Remember, that's why the most dangerous words in the English language are, I am from the government and I'm here to help you. Now, also, I wanted to follow up a little bit on my discussion of Puerto Rico in the last podcast, because another angle that I wanted to bring up there has to do with the minimum wage, because there is a broad effort nationwide to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And some cities like Los Angeles have actually been dumb enough to do it, right? So the minimum wage is going to go up to $15 an hour. Now, the advocates of the increase say that, hey, this isn't going to cost jobs. In fact, they say the opposite. They say if we just raise the minimum wage, more people are going to want to work because they're going to want to earn those higher wages, right? They're saying the minimum wage is too low to encourage people to work. But if we just pay them more, more people will work, right? That's the, the theory. And of course, more people will want to work. Sure. If the minimum wage was $1,000 an hour, everybody would want to work, right? But uh, nobody would want to pay it, so there'd be no jobs. You'd just have applicants, uh, but no actual jobs. So sure, in theory, yes, uh, that is supply and demand. You know, if uh, you're going to pay more for labor, more people are going to want to supply their labor. But the demand for labor will go down as the price goes up. That's what Puerto Rico proves. You see, Puerto Rico has the 725 minimum wage, but that equates to about 80% of the medium wage in Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico's wages on average are half of Mississippi, which I think is the lowest uh, wage state in the union. So wages in general are half of what they are in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. So the minimum wage of 725 in Puerto Rico is like a $15 minimum wage in Mississippi. You know, c- compared to California, it might it might be even bigger number. But if you just assume well, it's $15 an hour, well what has the effect of a $15 an hour relative minimum wage been on Puerto Rico? It's been a disaster. They've got better than 20% unemployment in Puerto Rico. Now, I keep talking about how the labor force participation rate is at the lowest it's been since the 70s in the United States. It's uh, what, 67% or something like that. In Puerto Rico, it is like 42, 43%. It is a huge difference. I mean, you're talking about almost 60% of the population not in the labor force. Why? Because the minimum wage has priced them out of the labor force. So all the people out there who think that higher minimum wages don't do any damage, look at Puerto Rico. It is a disaster in Puerto Rico in no small part because of the damage done 
by the federal minimum wage. Now, there's even a lot of people in Puerto Rico who recognize this, and they want the minimum wage lowered because it's too high. But it happens to be about where everybody wants to raise it. So the argument should be settled just by looking at what's going on in Puerto Rico. If having a high minimum wage was good, why isn't it good for Puerto Rico? If higher minimum wages encourage more people to work, why are so few people working in Puerto Rico? The minimum wage is part of the problem. It's not the only problem. You got the Jones Act, which is driving up the cost of shipments in and out of Puerto Rico. And you've got the fact that Puerto Ricans can qualify for welfare benefits, which for most people who can qualify for them, the welfare benefits exceed a minimum wage job. And a minimum wage job, if you can get one, is pretty much 80% of the medium wage. I mean, you know, you're, you're talking about the bar for entry-level workers. I mean, there really is no entry-level work in Puerto Rico. Because if you qualify for a job at the minimum wage, you've almost got the medium wage. So there is no real entry-level position. That's why so many young people that are unemployed. That's why so many young people leave Puerto Rico, because they have no hope of getting a job in Puerto Rico. And one of the reasons for that is the minimum wage. So it is a great case study that everybody is ignoring. And if people say, well, we don't really know what the effect is going to be of a higher minimum wage. Yes, we do. Just look at Puerto Rico. Look at the disaster. It is an unmitigated disaster that has been created by this law. Now, of course, the hope for Puerto Rico is that they get out from under this debt in some kind of a default, which will help. And to the extent that successful entrepreneurs continue to move to Puerto Rico to start businesses because of the favorable tax climate that finally Puerto Rico woke up in 2012 and realized what a diamond they had, the ability to get people out from under the Internal Revenue Service. They should have been doing this a long time ago, and then Puerto Rico would be wealthier than any of the 50 states, not poorer, but at least they finally got the message. So if enough entrepreneurs come there, they'll eventually bid up wages to the point where the minimum wage won't do as much damage because you'll have so many businesses vying for employees that the natural price of labor will rise along with the higher demand for labor. So somebody put a comment on my last podcast, you know, you've been saying all these good things about Puerto Rico. Now you're talking about the problems. Look, I've always talked about the debt problem. And I've always discouraged people from buying any Puerto Rican debt because I knew that they had borrowed over their heads and that the smart move would eventually be to default. And I think they've been playing this all along. I mean, they suckered a bunch of hedge funds into buying some bonds, was it a year or two ago? And maybe a lot of their friends got to cash out because they were just rolling over some maturing debt, which may have been defaulted on back then. But instead, they borrowed the money from hedge funds to pay off uh, earlier investors. But hey, those hedge funds were dumb enough to buy to buy that paper. But I've always said, look, it makes sense to move to Puerto Rico to take advantage of the new tax laws. But at no point did I, did I say buy Puerto Rican debt because Puerto Rican debt I knew uh, was in trouble. But based on the laws, the Act 20 and Act 22 rules, I knew they couldn't raise taxes on people who just moved there in order to get out of jail. Right. Because the, the, the law is written so that it protects uh, the people who moved to Puerto Rico from higher taxes. So the only people who could be subject to higher taxes were the Puerto Ricans who were already living there. And I guess the Puerto Rican politicians did not want to raise taxes further uh, on their constituents. Uh, They didn't want to cut government spending, which is unfortunate because they should be cutting government spending, but uh, they'd rather inflict the pain on the lenders, especially since so many of the owners of Puerto Rican bonds do not vote in Puerto Rican elections. So they would rather screw those guys Uh, than their own voters. 
Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They are all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold video cast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold video cast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com.